Welcome to Women Leading the Way Radio Show, where each time you'll hear from successful women CEOs, executives, and professionals, where we'll discover how they do what they do to be successful in business. We'll be interviewing women who have overcome big challenges, women who have incredible stories of lessons learned in dealing with adversity. We'll even interview women who have started and grown successful organizations and women who are C-level executives with unique talents and positions. Our goal is to bring successful businesswomen together to share how they're leading the way in business today. Good afternoon and welcome to Women Lead Radio, brought to you by Connected Women of Influence. I'm John Burroughs with Finance of America, your host today for this Friday edition of Your Financial Fitness. And I am thrilled to introduce our leading lady today, that would be Carrie Voorhees, owner of Voorhees and Ratzlaff Law Group, LLP, from Chino, California. Carrie, welcome to the show. Say hello to our audience. Hello. Thanks for having me. A real pleasure here. Now, I'm going to let the cat out of the back and let let our listeners know that you and I did talk a little earlier today because we've never had the pleasure of meeting face-to-face, so I wanted to get a feel for your practice, and uh, you are an estate planning attorney. Um, your limited liability partnership, is, as it says in your namesake there. Um, tell us just a little bit, Carrie, about your background, your expertise, just you know, a little where you went to school, what got you into this whole business, what was your inspiration. I don't think everybody wakes up in the morning and says, gee, I want to go be an estate planning attorney. So uh, what, what brought you down this path? Yeah, so um, I have always wanted to be an attorney. Um, I chose a different path in that I had my children and raised them first. So in 2013, after staying home with the kids for about 14 years, I chose to go back to law school. Um, When I graduated law school, I went to Whittier Law School in California, When I graduated law school, I had the opportunity to purchase a practice from an attorney that was retiring in Chino, Um, and since the opportunity presented itself, I thought it would be wonderful to be able to have the flexibility to still be with my family as well, and so I purchased the practice. Well, that brings to mind a couple of questions right, right off the bat with me here, too. Now, you sound so young to me that when you say staying at home with the kids for 14 years, that had to be quite a transition. Were were there challenges there? Or tell me, what did your kids say when you announced that mommy's going back to school? Not only that, she's going to be a lawyer. And I assume there was a lot of support from your husband as well. Absolutely, yeah. Everybody supported it, but it was a little bit surprising to everyone that I chose then. And there was quite a bit of transition. When I started law school, my youngest child was in kindergarten, and my oldest was in fifth grade. So there was quite a bit of transition over the four years. Yeah, that's got to be tough. I lived with one of my best friends while he was in law school at UC Davis Law. And just watching that process of that first and second year law student, it scared me from ever wanting to go down that road. So. How did you manage juggling, I mean, being a mom and little kids and 
you know, and law school's not easy, let's face it. No, it wasn't easy. You know what, I was lucky enough to have um, support from my family and also a network of wonderful young adults that would come in and help me out with the children at night. I took classes at night so that I could study during the day while they were in school. Um, So I had wonderful support that we didn't have family that lived in the area. So we had a great support system of the same three or four young adults that helped us out all throughout school. Um, That really helped help let me achieve my goal and my dream. Without them, there's no way we could have done it alone. Well, I, I, admire, I admire your chutzpah there to be able to bite off something of, of, of that kind and then to turn it into a successful endeavor. Uh, so let's just jump in with both feet because I have a, a list of questions here. and Our half hour okay. is going to go by in, in the blink of an eye. So let's talk for a minute about one of my least favorite subjects, and that's called probate. Now, you're an estate planning attorney. You're little giggling and laughing, and I know why, because uh, give us an idea of, of what's going on with probate and why people want to avoid it. Right. So probate is California's legal way of dispensing of your assets after death if you choose not to plan for them. And the thing that's the most frustrating about probate is that it is easily avoidable if we just educate people. And that's kind of been our firm's goal is to educate people. Um, Probate in California is a process that typically takes one to two years. Um, Even if you have a will, if your assets are more than $166,000, which is essentially every homeowner in California, if you don't create a living trust, you are going through the probate process. And many times people think if they have a will, they'll be fine, but wills still go through the probate process. Um, Probate is public record. So if you've ever gone through the process, you you realize that once you file your probate petition, your phone's ringing because there's realtors and other professionals that buy, buy the information from the courts to know that we want to sell your home, we see your administrator, there's this asset there. Um, So we really want to avoid probate because it's long, arduous, and it's not private. Um, And it's difficult. So it's it's everything we can do not to avoid it is our goal. Uh, What about the cost associated? And aren't you just handing over a chunk of that estate to the state of California? Yes and no. So the costs associated with probate are really where it gets you. The state itself doesn't take any money, but the administrator and the attorneys are the ones where it's statutory. It's by law. So it's based on the value of your estate. Um, What is horrible about that is if I have a home that's valued at $800,000, but I have a $700,000 mortgage or liens against the property, the value and the statutory fees to the administrator and the attorney are based on the value, not the equity in the home. Oh, that's crazy. So it is crazy. So when you're dealing with a trust and a trust administration, the fees that you pay the attorney are different because it's agreed upon by the client and the attorney. It's not statutory. Um, gotcha. So, so that's one thing. Yeah. So I'm hearing yeah. some of those pitfalls are 
time frame and cost, and I would imagine if you're hanging up your estate and there's actually a family involved that is in need uh, of the real proceeds to get that settled, you could be dragging this on for quite some period of time. What about uh, two, once it's uh, gone to probate, doesn't that bring some of the, oh, people out of the woodwork that are, you know, of the family, or what's the downfall there? Now, granted, you may have a will, but uh, does that leave you open to other persons laying claim to the estate or, or not? It definitely could. One of the problems with probate is kind of an accidental disinheritance because when you have families, especially in California where the divorce rate is so high, you typically have blended family, oh, and yeah. if it's the second spouse to pass away and no planning was done, the children from the first spouse that passed away would never receive anything because it goes through the probate laws, so they would never receive. So you may accidentally disinherit people that you don't intend to. Um, the flip side is you may have wanted to not provide for someone in your family, and because you're going through the probate process, the probate law dictates who receives your money. Um, oh, wow. So you also may leave money to someone you didn't intend to. So you've got California laws making decisions for you, if not properly planned. Exactly. Well, I know the Instead answer of yourself. to the next Right. I know the answer to the next question, but I'm going to let you tell everybody. Obviously, there's a solution for this. We want to avoid that. And I guess that would be the living trust. So um, why is that the, uh, the desired um, solution to that little dilemma? Absolutely, because it allows you to, one, avoid the probate process while still allowing you to give your money to your heirs how you want to and also in the way you want to. If we have a child that tends to have a spending problem, or with special needs, a living trust allows us to create a plan that's perfect for whatever your family is. So it allows us to get to know the families so that we can create the perfect plan to fit their needs. Now, having just gone through this process myself, amending my own living trust, I'm familiar with a lot of the, and I'm making uh, substantial corrections uh, to mine. So, so I would assume it's uh, prudent. You say, oh, I've got a trust that I've had there for 20 years, but when was the last time you looked at it? How often, in your opinion, should people update those trusts and why? You know, I think a trust should be looked at typically every three to five years or if a major event occurs, you know, death, divorce, disability. Those are the times that you should look at your trust. The three Ds, death, divorce, and disability. Um, I have heard the terms, uh, and again, a revocable trust or an irrevocable trust. Tell us, what's the difference between the two of those? Well, at face value, the revocable trust can be revoked, so you can make changes to it as needed, where an irrevocable trust, you cannot make changes to it. Um, Typically, irrevocable trusts are used in more advanced estate planning, um, which would involve some asset protection, tax avoidance, Medi-Cal protection, where a revocable trust is used kind of every day. It doesn't protect your assets necessarily from creditors, but it allows you to give your assets to the people you want them to go to, and it avoids probate. 
So when we're dealing with irrevocable trust, those things can't be changed. They're irrevocable, but there's uses for them that are above and beyond, you know, just normal protecting them from probate. Mm-hmm. Now, we talk about, um, you know, establishing your trust. Uh, there are players with so uh, the term trustee of the trust. Uh, comes to mind, the most common thing that I see when reading through them for my clients. Uh, but who are the, the trustee? I mean, they have an obligation to do what's right on behalf of the trust. But kind of explain that transition, if you would. I've got the trustee. I'm the trustee of my trust. Uh, but then when I'm no longer here, you know, there's a chain of command. So kind of explain that process and the responsibilities or obligations of the trustee of any trust. Yes. So when you create a revocable trust, you are the trustee. So you are the person that has authority to act on behalf of that trust. You're in charge of all the assets. Um, When you're no longer trustee, which would be on your incapacity or your death, your successor Mm -hmm. trustee comes in. So your successor trustee acts not only if you're deceased, but if you're incapacitated. And that's another benefit of of a trust. A will doesn't allow that. So we have someone that's able to step in and manage your finances if you're incapacitated. Um, The successor trustee has duties, and they're all laid out in the probate code, but they act as a fiduciary. So um, many of their duties are that of a fiduciary. So they have to protect your assets and manage your assets for your benefit if you're living. And then if you're Mm -hmm. deceased, with the ultimate goal of distributing them to your beneficiaries. Now, one of the things I have, and you hit a point there too when you said uh, incapacitated. Uh, Recently, this last year on more than one occasion, I've seen somebody who is uh, mentally capable of, you know, making decisions and doing things on behalf of their trust. But let's face it, age catches up with everybody. Uh, And what if you get to that point where, you know, you're going, hey, I don't think I can really handle this anymore. Uh, can you basically resign from your own trust? Or uh, what do you see typically or what would you suggest typically when you have somebody that's in that capacity? Is once they've mentally slipped, I assume that's another whole process, right? Correct. So you can resign as trustee and have your successor trustee act. In trust, there are provisions that will allow that to occur so that you can even act as a co-trustee with your successor. That way, if you are starting to get up there in age or starting to slip, but you still have capacity, you have someone else that can help you. Um, If you are incapacitated, the trust also has provisions on how your incapacity is determined and how do we have the successor trustee act. What, What do we have to do Um, to ensure that the successor trustee is put in place. Those are all provisions that are put into a trust, which also are not put into a will, which is another benefit of having a trust. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Now, I've seen many many situations where we have multiple trustees, and I have seen that go both ways. Uh, Sometimes where, and and typically, uh, the most common example I know of is siblings, you know, in a family. Mom and dad have passed and then there's multiple trustees, but uh, I've seen the situation where there were two co-trustees and they did not agree on what should be done. So if you hit a brick wall, uh, there's got to be some sort of either sanctions or solutions for when you have 
issues come up. Uh, do you do you see that come up very often? Yes, unfortunately, You're I do. You're laughing, aren't um, you? <laughs> <laughs> yes, I I see it too often. So I try to encourage my clients that, if at all feasible, to just choose one person. Um, oftentimes, family feels that if they only have two children and they choose one, it means they're, you know, they they're playing favorites. And I often assure them that based on the job, the child that you don't choose will likely feel that they're the favorite because it's such a cumbersome job. Um, When we have two people that are acting and they disagree, as an attorney, that means that I can no longer represent them because now I have a conflict between the two, my two clients. So they both need to go get different representation. Um, So when we're drafting the trust, Oftentimes, we try to talk about that with the client so they understand what could happen um, and, and draft provisions to kind of foresee if that does happen, how do we take care of it. And you always look to the trust instrument itself and how to handle those types of situations. Interesting. Now, I, I've uh, seen not too long ago, actually, I'm dealing with a clients right now that are in the situation where the attorney for the family actually acts as the trustee. The original uh, trust holder said, I really don't want to put this pressure or weight or responsibility on the shoulders of my children, and I don't know that they can make the right decision. So you have that come up very often where another entity, a disinterested third party, will act as trustee. Yes. You know, oftentimes there's clients that have no children and they say that they don't have anybody that they could trust or anybody that they would even think of to name as a trustee. So then that you would look to a private fiduciary or a bank. Sometimes you can have an attorney, but there's rules for attorneys to act as trustee. Um, there's requirements. Our firm typically we deter and we will not act as trustee. Um, it's just our practice not to, but there are attorneys that will. Um, there's just loopholes that you have to get through to be able to do that. But typically you could have banks or a private fiduciary act. Um, we, we really try to strive to have our clients dig deep to find a friend or someone that will be able to do it because it is very personal when you are closing out and administering the trust and it just is a shame when it's a private fiduciary or someone that is going to take a lot of the wealth away from the beneficiaries. Um, mm-hmm. So it is nice to have someone there. But sometimes people just don't have someone they trust. Now, Carrie, uh, I, I, it slipped my mind here. We want to take a little brief, quick break here, too, um, to thank those members that make this show possible for us. So we'll take a little time out, and then we're going to share your contact information with our listeners. Okay. Thanks, John. Women Lead Radio is brought to you today by Connected Women of Influence and our partner, Microsoft. Microsoft's mission is to empower every person and organization on the planet to achieve more. Microsoft believes technology is a powerful force for good, and they're working to foster a sustainable future where everyone has access to the benefits and opportunities created by technology. Microsoft believes technology can and should be a force for good and that meaningful innovation can and will contribute to a brighter world in big and small ways. So thank you for your support, Microsoft, and to all of our sponsors and partners. And, John, back to you. 
And welcome back to our Friday edition of Your Financial Fitness. We're here with the owner, Carrie Voorhees of Voorhees Ratzlaff Law Group, LLP. And Carrie, I'm sure you're going to prompt some questions so some of our listeners. So please share what's the best contact number or method for folks to get in, in touch with you should they wish to you know, pick your brain a little further. Um, sure. Our phone number is 909-334-1425, and that's our office number. And one more time with that number. Sure. It's 909-334-1425. Okay. Thank you so very much. Now, uh, back to the subject at hand. Now, I know in everybody's job, nobody's perfect. People make mistakes every once in a while. I certainly know I do. You hit a bump in the road and you try to backtrack and correct as best you can. And in your field of practice, there is a law. I like to call it the do-over law. But please kind of explain, and if I butcher the name, I want to say it's the Hecketstead Petition. Explain that to us and why that's such a wonderful thing. Right. So the Hegstead petition was created from a case, um, the estate of Hegstead. It essentially was where a person passed away and they had real property that they never transferred into the name of their trust. So he died holding title to it as an individual. Um, That's one of the biggest issues we see with trust is people fail to fund their trust, which is really just transferring their assets into the name of their trust. So the Hegstead petition came to be from that case where we can create a petition and as long as we can show that the decedent intended to put it in his trust and intent is shown by either having it on a list stating this is what I intend to put in my trust or a general assignment in the trust language, we can go ahead and avoid probate by filing a petition with the court, and then the court will issue an order in which it will become part of the trust. So it's a wonderful so, um, tool that we can use, that we, we use often. Yeah, I like so the do-over clause. That's yeah. excellent, too. Now, you made uh, mention there, too, and that, again, jogging my memory here, uh, the assets being in the trust. What I did personally, just recently, uh, is that, you know, I have my retirement accounts, 401K from employer, business assets, you know, bank accounts, life insurance, all of those things, and I made my trust the beneficiary of these to make things a little bit simpler. So then all funds will flow to the trust and then be distributed from there. So holding your IRA or your 401K or those assets within your trust as the beneficiary, that's doable, but does it take any extra work or stipulations attached to that process? Yes, it does. Um, There are certain um, provisions that must be in the trust if you're going to have your IRA in the trust. Um, And now with the passing of the SECURE Act, that really kind of changes the type of trust you can create to have your IRA going into the trust. So those are, that's very much an advanced planning mechanism and there's certain types of trust that would be better to have your IRA in rather than just a normal revocable trust. 
but you absolutely can do it, but you really want to make sure that you have the guidance of an estate planning attorney and a tax professional so that you're aware of the tax ramifications of doing that. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So um, just the common pitfalls, if you'd say, I know there's a lot of frequently asked questions <laughs> that folks will have, but what, what do you think, if you could nail just a couple of them down, the common pitfalls uh, or mistakes people made when trying to go through this process? Um, the number one is they don't fund their trust. So they write their trust and they think, I have a trust. And they come to you and they say, here's my trust. And you say, what assets are in your trust? And none of them were ever put in. So that's the number one, is failing to actually transfer your assets to your trust. And a lot of the reasons why that doesn't get done is people will go to, you know, LegalZoom and different online ways to go ahead and create their trust. And they're not getting the counseling that comes from going through it an attorney and speaking with them to understand how you transfer your assets in your trust. So that's the number one mistake we see. Hmm. Interesting. Um, I would assume why go to all the bother and time and energy of putting one together if you're not going to fund the trust? That seems a little silly. Exactly. But, uh, exactly. But people don't understand that they need to do that. They don't get it. And and, and that's understandable because it's not easy. <laughs> what... um. I know this is, you know, real general, but what attributes of your successor trustees, uh, and, and so common is just, you know, the, the, the children of them, but what um, demeanor or character um, strengths and such are you looking for when you're trying to figure out what person, what what individual do I want and trust to be able to take care of this the way it's supposed to go? So first and foremost is trust, right? Successor trustee, it's right in the name for you. So trust is your first one. The second is, you know, dependability and good with money. So one of your duties of a successor trustee is to make trust property productive. So we need to make sure that our successor trustees have a little bit of understanding about finances and money so that they can handle things. So um, trust and Understanding and good with money would be my top two. Mm-hmm. Um, and oftentimes you're dealing with children. Many of these things are put into place while the children are not of an age where they're able to grasp or understand it too. But one thing that we learned in our family, and I'm very grateful that my parents were good about they had what I call, quote, unquote, the talk early if, uh, early along in our adulthood. So we sat down and eyeball to eyeball explained the process and said, look, you're going to be part of this process someday. Um, I mean, how do you advise your clients along those lines? Because the last thing you want to do is get a surprise. Mom and dad are passed and nobody knows what's going on or what to do next. So what's your general advice for people in relationship to the trustees and their kids? Oh, conversations. The more open conversations you can have with your family, not only about your wishes, but about what should occur upon your death, who's in charge, what you want, the better. Um, you know, it, it, would have, it will avoid a lot of hurt feelings and a lot of the unknowns because, you know, I always say if there's going to be a problem with someone and if you are doing something you're not sure about, it's better to know while you're alive so that you can handle it 
rather than to leave it for your heirs to clean up when you're gone. So talking and conversation is really important. Excellent. Great advice there. I appreciate that, as do our listeners. You know, I knew this would happen. I mean, we've only got about less than two minutes to go on our show here today. Uh, I've got a whole list of questions we are not going to get to. We are not um, going to get to. (laughs) Yeah, not all of them here. But before we run out of time, uh, please give us your contact information one more time, and then I have one final major question for you. Sure, sure. So our phone number is 909 Three three four one four two five, and we're Voorhees and Ratzlaff Law Group, and we are on all of your social media. So, feel free to look us up. Excellent. We appreciate your expertise. Okay, um, I set you up before the show here, and I hope you thought of something there. You got any? Oh, we always like to end on a happy note. Do you have any? Hit it out of the ballpark, grand slam, <laughs> home run story to share about how wonderful you are and how you saved the day as Superwoman? You know, I thought about that. Um, And I don't really, I guess my biggest thing for me is estate planning is really about relationships. And I do have a situation where I had a mother who had decided that she wasn't going to leave anything to her child for various reasons. Um, She also owns a few businesses. So part of what I do is business succession planning And in the course of me working with the family through the business succession planning, I started to see a few things, and I spoke to my client privately and asked her to reconsider about her daughter and that she needs to have a conversation with her and to tell her the feelings because I could tell her daughter had no idea that she wasn't going to receive anything. And through my push to have her talk, she since reconnected with her daughter and their relationship is way better um and you know wonderful for me is more than anything else because it really is about our family and our relationship more than any anything else well thank you very much uh carrie we are out of time that's our show for today it just flew right by and i'd like to say thank (laughs) you to our leading lady today uh, carrie voorhees and uh a special thanks to all of our listeners, both in the U.S. and internationally, as we are an international show. We'll be back again for another Women Lead Radio show, Mondays at 9 a.m. Pacific Time and Fridays at 2 p.m. Pacific Time. It's been my pleasure to be your host today, John Burroughs, Finance of America. Thank you for listening, and have a great week. Thank you. Women Leading the Way is produced by Connected Women of Influence the premier private membership organization where like-focused, business-to-business executive and professional women connect, collaborate, and cultivate a vast network of high-level affiliations, resources, and professional relationships. For more information about Connected Women of Influence, please visit our website at connectedwomenofinfluence.com.